sometimes I see it as a universal longing. It's really no different in one person than it is in the next. It takes different forms. But it's a kind of spiritual urge. Um, And the way I experience it within others and within myself is a kind of urge to merge with life, uh, to connect with the deepest parts of myself and the deepest parts of others, and to know from that connection deep within myself that I'm not really separate from anyone else, that there's this experiential feeling of a boundarylessness with all of life, with other beings. And mostly, as I do my own Dharma practice and come across many others who have the same urge, this homing instinct, this universal longing, um, and I ask them or the... uh, it just comes up somehow in our being together, I find out that mostly people want to open their hearts. It, you know, maybe the understanding or idea of being free, totally free, or uh, experiencing um, the whatever there is to experience from this path, uh, Nibbana, all of that, that can be a far-off star to most of us, to many people. But mostly it's this urge to open our hearts and to feel this openness with a kind of wisdom that also protects us from being that open, from being that sort of um, raw in life. As we become more aware of the suffering that comes from having a closed heart. And this is something, as we practice, we become more and more aware of, that our hearts are really closed and we want to open. Um, The spiritual urge to open our hearts becomes stronger, no matter what the stakes are. I experience myself and many other people going through a tremendous amount of emotional, mental, and physical pain in order to experience this open-heartedness, this connection with all beings. As I was um, writing my notes down, I came across this one quote that I love, but I, I can't remember the name of the author. I'll put it up on the board to give her the correct credit, but she says like this, And the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. The day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. I'm sure each one of you, each one of us in our own ways, knows what this means, that there comes a time in our lives when it hurts more to be closed than it hurts to open our hearts. And we can't remain in the same way anymore, no matter what the stakes are, no matter 
how difficult the terrain is that we're going through, we keep going. We keep doing what we can, what we know how to do, what we feel safe and confident in doing to open our hearts. And all of these practices, uh, vipassana practice that we do, most of us are doing most of the time, and the practices of the Brahma-viharas, or the Brahma-viharas, as uh, Sharon and Carol have explained, are the practices of the divine abodes. Brahma means abode and uh, means uh, divine, and vihara means abode. And it can also mean like um, divine emotions because these are places that we dwell in our hearts. The four, just to recap to you, are loving-kindness, or metta, which is that ability to touch into that place in our hearts, that wellspring deep within us, to really wish others well. It remembering that it has nothing to do with the outcome of that wish, but it has everything to do with our capability to actually make that wish, to actually touch into our hearts and feel genuinely, may you be happy, without any attachment to the result of that. And so what compassion is, compassion comes out of metta. It's an aspect of metta. And what that is, is turning that metta towards suffering and standing before suffering unwaveringly with that wish. So what sympathetic joy is, or mudita, is turning that that metta, or that loving-kindness, towards happiness and allowing our metta to stand before happiness unwaveringly and know it in our hearts and wish it for others and not close down. That, in some ways, is harder to do than opening our hearts to suffering. So I'd like to speak about sympathetic joy, or mudita, tonight, because it's said that it is one of the uh, most difficult, or it is the most difficult, of all of the Brahma-viharas to cultivate, because it's so difficult for us to open to happiness. And there are many obstacles that uh, can come in our way to that opening. So just to complete on the four Brahma-viharas, or divine abodes, the fourth one is equanimity. And what equanimity allows us to do, what it strengthens our hearts to do, is to be able to open to both the suffering and the happiness without wavering. To be able to hold both in one spacious, balanced stillness of our hearts. So, as we all know and can see day by day and hour by hour, sitting by sitting in our practice, we can easily um, perseverate around suffering because it, it calls our attention a lot. And we're actually become very accustomed to being in that realm. So the question that often arises for me is, how can I allow myself how can we allow ourselves to really experience happiness? 
can we really take this practice of sympathetic joy that we've been doing for a few days, couple of days, and take it to heart, and really take it seriously. And so it helps sometimes to just take that whole subject and put a light on it, to look at as many aspects as we can about happiness and the reasons why we don't allow ourselves to be happy and the reasons why we could allow ourselves to be happy. (laughs) If there could only be a law or some kind of daily guideline, um, but there isn't, you know, because in this realm of existence, suffering abounds, and we really have to have a conscious intention to open to happiness. Believe it or not, there is a law in the state of Hawaii about this. (laughs) I found it recently. It's in the general provisions of the statutes of Hawaii. It's on page 30. This comes right from the book. (laughs) It's actually um, put under why we are called, the state of Hawaii is called the Aloha State. and what it is, and what we should cultivate as members of that state, as citizens of that state. And these qualities are very similar to the qualities of metta, and compassion, and sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So I'd just like to read them to you, because it's it's quite interesting. I just came across this this year. So it talks about, in this section, 5 dash. 7.5, page 30, of the general provisions, (laughs) that the aloha spirit is the coordination of mind and heart within each person. It brings each person to the self. So we have our own way of uh, transcribing that. Each person must think and emote good feelings to others. In the contemplation and presence of the life force, aloha, the following uh, unuhi laula loa must be used. I don't even know what that means, but I can pronounce it. (laughs) Akahai, which is the first um, letter of aloha, I, akahai, meaning kindness to be expressed with tenderness. Lokahi, which is the L of aloha, meaning unity, to be expressed with harmony. Olu-olu, meaning agreeable, to be expressed with pleasantness. Ha'a-ha'a, meaning humility, to be expressed with modesty. Anonui, meaning patience, to be expressed with perseverance. These are traits of character that express the charm, warmth, and sincerity of Hawaii's people. It was the working philosophy of native Hawaiians and was presented as a gift to the people of Hawaii. Aloha is more than a word of greeting or farewell or salutation. Aloha means mutual regard and affection and extends warmth and caring with no obligation in return. It's amazing that that part was put in because it really expresses the 
um, no attachment to result, to the unconditional nature of aloha, just like metta and all the different expressions of metta express unconditional nature. So it is with caring, with no obligation in return. Aloha is the essence of relationships in which each person is important to every other person for collective existence. Aloha means to hear what is not said, to see what cannot be seen, and to know the unknowable. Imagine this being in the statues. (laughs) It's quite amazing. So then it says, in exercising their power on behalf of the people and in fulfillment of their responsibilities, obligations, and service to all the people, to the legislature, governor, lieutenant governor, executive officers of each department, the chief justice, associate justices, and the judges of the appellate circuit and district courts, may they contemplate and reside with the life force and give consideration to the aloha spirit. It's actually part of the law. So can we make these Brahma-viharas part of our ways of being, part of our, our own guidelines, part of the, the laws that we allow ourselves to work within? It's hard because as we open our hearts, we risk exposing a lot of our vulnerabilities we not only risk exposing, when we open our hearts, our goodness, but we risk exposing our not-so-goodness. It's a humbling experience, as every one of us knows, to do this uh, metta practice, to do any of the practices of metta, because we have to put out, right in front of us and in front of others, the darknesses of our hearts. And it's embarrassing we expose the unloved parts of ourselves and we expose those of others when there is really an honesty and a truthfulness among friends. And they're exposed, I think sometimes they're exposed because they want to be known, they want to be recognized, they want to be accepted, they, they want in some, they keep coming up because they want to be cared and touched and held in a way that says, this is part of being human. I'm not going to push this part away, and I'm not going to abandon this part of humanness. They're getting exposed because they don't want to be abandoned. So can we hold those parts of ourselves like we hold a crying child? without needing to fix the child's crying or change it, or just to give it comfort, to recognize it, so they can be let go of. So when we embark on the practices and the trainings of the Brahma-viharas, it's necessary to know that in these practices, in the development of them, many qualities will come up that actually hinder or seem to hinder their strength, they will surface. So tonight, in speaking about the quality of mudita, mudita, or sympathetic joy, um, I'll talk also about the, the uh, 
hindrances to them. So just covering all, all aspects. It really helps to be honest and not just to talk about, you know, the beauty of our hearts. But when we talk honestly about the darkness of our hearts, it's a way in which we recognize and name them like they, you know, they did in times of old, in the myths of old, when um, um, a knight, or how do you call it in a feminine aspect, a knightess, <laughs> went to fight the dragon, and the dragon came out of the cave to show its head. When that person had a name, or could recognize, or could see that dragon clearly, and could clearly name it, the dragon transformed. And so by exposing with honesty all those places of darkness, we can transform them. So mudita is a quality of rejoicing with others. Really have that unconditional rejoicing with their happiness, their success, their fulfillment, their accomplishments in any area of their life, be it in their spiritual life, their family life, their um, educational life, business. So rejoicing with them. And the Buddha spoke of the incredible energy that happiness has to help liberate us from suffering. So when we recognize this force within ourselves, we see how much that force has the energy to, um, to carry us towards the end of suffering. Mudita helps us to know how to rejoice in the joys of life in a way that allows the joys to come and go without holding on, that allows the joys to come and go like butterflies come and go on flowers, you know, where the flowers don't contract to trap. So how do we allow ourselves to enjoy life, to feel our happiness for ourselves and others with this kind of open-petaled heart, without the attachment, without the aversion? Mudita, or sympathetic joy, is a profound sign of our friendship with others. If we examine our lives and our friendship with others, when I examine my own realistically, uh, I see that there's a lot that I can develop more in this area. To have this kind of unconditional happiness for the happiness of others is pretty rare. So to um, put some energy on it in my own life is, has been really important to me in, in the past years, in the past year or two especially, where I'm not requiring others to enjoy their happiness in any particular way, but I can simply rejoice in their happiness and therefore feel my own happiness in that. That's not easy to do because we constantly want another person to enjoy their happiness, to enjoy life in the way we think they should enjoy it, especially, I think, if we're parents. It's hardest of all. Um, 
I have a friend who's a my mudita mentor. Um, I I really enjoy being around her a lot because most of the times with with certain friends we discuss a lot of our hardships and our failures and our ways that um, you know we can easily have sympathetic suffering, but <laughs> not so easily have sympathetic joy with one another, and that's where we we hang around you know each other sympathetic suffering and. So the main thing is not talking about our joys in life. I find that people are reluctant to talk about joys and fulfillment and happiness in the fear that, you know, it'll make the other person feel isolated or bad or, you know, not good enough, not as good as you. So I find myself talking about how awful I am (laughs) so that the other person won't feel so bad. (laughs) Um, you know, it happens a lot in interview. You know, many of you come to me and say how awful it is, and I'll, I'll say a time when it was just as awful. <laughs> um, and I'll have to catch myself, you know, is that really a way to lift a person? <laughs> um, <laughs> living in a place where there's lots of sea life, you know, in Hawaii. You know, there's that old thing about crabs in a barrel. If you ever watch how crabs are in a barrel, when one starts to climb up and get out of the barrel, all of the other ones come and pull that one crab down. And so that's the way it is. It can be in life. The tall poppy syndrome. Um, So this friend of mine, this older friend, she's in her mid-80s, She's my mudita mentor. And it's wonderful to go to her and to talk about my happinesses in life because she can be just so happy for me about the littlest thing, about I'll call her up if I found a new lipstick that I like, you know, (laughs) or um, just that maybe I saw a rainbow that day. And I won't call her up for anything special, but just to share a happiness with her. And in her ability to share that happiness, it, it, you know, it lifts me somehow. She said someone, something to me that's a Christian saying that she said that Jesus said that has been um, a teaching, an, an ever-deepening teaching to me through, through the years. And it, it's like this, according to what Jesus said, Let no one take thy joy. And I know that I often let that happen to me. Let no one take thy joy. And so I've put it up for me to see, you know, like, I know there's this place in me that can really experience happiness by attending to the happiness of others, by seeing the happiness, acknowledging the happiness in others, and to remind myself to do that. Um, I know that I can't control things in life, you know, by controlling how other people are happy and get happy. But I know that I can recognize happiness when I see it. And by the simple recognition of it, I can be happy too. It's so simple, but we often overlook that. 
I often get pulled off track um, by not knowing what my own potential is to know happiness. So I'd like to talk about the ways that we're pulled off track, the impediments to joy, to happiness, and also talk about ways that strengthen our ability to experience joy and happiness. When we, when we look at uh, sympathetic joy, just objectively, in a practical way, we see that sympathetic joy is non-judgmental. It has this, in, in, it has this flexibility of mind that gives ourselves the ability to let go of our attachments to the way we think it should be. That people can choose and live their lives in many different ways. They can express their happiness, their love, their appreciation in many different ways from us. And we can enjoy, rejoice with them in their happiness. We don't have to control it or make it in the way that we think it should be. There's just a a recent experience I had with my daughter, Therese. I told you she turned 18, and so she's in Hawaii. That's a state where you're of legal age and you can make your own decisions. Well, a few days ago, she told me that uh, she was really happy that she made her own decision. So I was just wondering, oh no, can I really be happy? What is you know, unconditionally happy for this decision of hers. What what could it be? You know, so oh, so <laughs> so my mind went all over the place, you know. Her decision to have a baby, oh God, you know, her <laughs> her decision to uh move out, her decision to buy a new car. So there was all this fear coming up, you know, so I could see all right away, that the impediments were coming up and I didn't even know what it was she was happy about, you know. (laughs) Um, So she decided and she went ahead on her decision to pierce her belly button. (laughs) It, It, you know, it was something really so kind of silly, but in her life it was so important to do that, you know. So she went over, step by step, what happened. And every step, I, I tried to see, can I be happy for her? <laughs> um, it was, and actually, it was really hard. <laughs> because of this need to, you know, be in control of this 18-year-old and her life. And, you know, it, it's impossible, of course, but there's always this motherly, not-so-wholesome aspect that comes up. Um, so she went through it step by step. She said, Mom, I really had to know what pain is. <laughs> okay, so what happened? You know, and then she told me that it was really painful, that she screamed, and she said, and I came through that with a lot of confidence. I really know what pain is. And <laughs> so I thought... Oh, I'm not so sure about that, you know. But okay, so confidence. You really got a lot of confidence out of that. And there were glimmers of, you know, I could really be happy for her for that. 
But there was more than that. There was like a doubting, you know, whether that was real confidence. So doubt, a lot of doubt came up about whether she could really experience that. Um, That she could make her own decision. Actually, I really was happy about that. I was really happy that she could make her own decisions because I guess as a parent, you, you start to feel a little more equanimity when they make their own decisions and there's this ability to let go more. So her ability to make her own decisions, I could really be happy for. Her ability to endure pain, you know, the, the confidence that came from that. I'm feeling happier about that. Okay, <laughs> I admit to that. <laughs> um, but the fact that she has a belly button that's pierced with some ring, I, I'm not at all happy about that. <laughs> I can't get happy about that yet. <laughs> um, But people have different ways of being happy. Can I, be, can I be non-judgmental about it? You know, in some areas I can, and in some areas I can't. I have to be honest. But there's a growing mudita that's coming around this this whole area for me. So, I'll give you another report next year, maybe. <laughs> I hope it won't get any more than that. She said, Mom, at least I can take it out. It's not like a tattoo where I can't get rid of it. So that was my experience with that, non-judgmental, you know. And there, there are lots of ways which we experience, which we, if we're honest with ourselves, ways that we're judgmental about how other people express happiness, how they... Um, hold happiness in their lives, where it's really an impediment to our feeling true happiness for them when judgment gets in the way. You know, that they should be able to live their lives in a particular way or express happiness in a particular way for us to be able to open to it. There are genuine ways in which we do open to it. You know, another really simple way is just watching my mother. She's had a really hard life. She lived like most of our parents through the war, lived with incredible deprivation um, when you live in the midst of a war, and incredible hostility and um, awful things that happened to her. And now she's living her life with kind of a lot of ease, and um, she she likes to play bingo a lot. <laughs> and so when I call her, all she talks about mostly ninety percent is about her bingo experiences. And uh, I, in the beginning, had a lot of judgment about that, <laughs> but now I'm so happy that she can be happy that she can live her life in some ease. When I think about the terrible life she had earlier when she was raising us as children, when we lived in the Philippines and before I was born during the war, it was really hard. So for her to have this time of ease and not be judgmental about 
her happiness that comes with bingo. And, you know, I, I said oh, in my talk about gratitude or happiness that comes from just the simple giving. You know, she says with her bingo winnings that she shares all of it with everybody else, that, that that's what she does and that's what makes her happy, that then she gives all of her other um, people that she goes to bingo with money so that they can keep having happiness. So she's really a mentor for me in that. So how can we be non-judgmental? You know, just by recognizing this, the simple happinesses of others. The near and far enemies of mudita, uh, it's the near enemy is called near enemy because sometimes it seems like sympathetic joy. It's near it. And sometimes when it's near, things that are near, we don't recognize so easily. So the near enemy is um, exuberance or attached joy, where we have an agenda to someone else's happiness. And, and it, it's manifested in different ways. Exuberance is when, you know, we're just overly happy. There's a, there's a an overabundance of energy at someone else's happiness. And it kind of goes into uh, an extreme. And sometimes it has an agenda to it. I think Carol gave the example the other night when she uh, offered the instructions about when you're happy about somebody else winning the lottery because maybe they can pay you back now. Or sometimes I would look at it as, you want to share their happiness, but maybe you can share their winnings too. So it's that kind of where you have some kind of agenda about their happiness. It might be ever so subtle, but it's there. And it might go into some kind of um, extreme, uh, over-energetic display of happiness for them. The far enemy is aversion. Uh, is in, in the realm of aversion, and it's envy. And there are many ways that envy can come up. And there are many ways that aversion can come up. And so I'd like to explain the different ways. Aversion can come up, aversion in the form of envy and other ways can come up in more ways than the other that we can easily know than the attached way. And you'll notice with each one of these uh, Brahma-viharas, there is a near and far enemy. And each near or far enemy manifests as either attachment or aversion. So envy is manifested through aversion, and uh, exuberance is manifested through attachment with regard to sympathetic joy. Sometimes I've come to understand these... um, near and far enemies as a way that we create boundaries or um, solidify boundaries between ourselves and others. When we're not so aware of them, and maybe for some time we're not aware of them because they form a kind of um, safety for us, because we need that boundary for one reason or another. 
Sometimes that boundary helps us to avoid an intimacy when we're not yet feeling safe enough to feel, to experience, to know the strength within ourselves. So I see that in relationship to our growth in the practice, to our maturity in the practice. When one has so so solidified the boundary because the boundary needs to be there, It, it can't yet be dissolved because of this inability to feel safe with another or with a state that we can't open to, state of mind. Sometimes I see these um, manifestations of attachment or aversion as weaving a kind of cocoon around ourselves that we live in because it's safe. But it's also very, very small. Very small space. But when we're ready when we develop the strength within ourselves, when we begin to recognize these strengths of the Brahma-viharas, of um, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, loving-kindness within ourselves, and the wisdom that comes from Vipassana, then it sort of gives strength to those wings that are able to press against that cocoon and open it so we can fly and we can live beyond that small world, those small boundary lines. So sometimes when people are, it's really difficult for a person or myself to get beyond that, whatever it is, envy, judgment, criticism of others, um, comparing, demeaning, diminishing, all these impediments to happiness, I see that maybe the cocoon needs to be there for a while yet and not to condemn that part of ourselves. Um, and so when it's ready, you know, we'll, the wings will have the strength to little by little pick away at that cocoon when all those uh, wholesome states of mind feel more strong inside. So one of the first impediments is comparing, the comparing mind, comparing with others. We know if we watch carefully that when comparing arises, it's often the precursor to judging, to the judging mind, which is often a cause and condition for uh, criticism to arise, which is often the cause and condition for condemning to arise. So it gets, you know, more and more solidified, more and more dark. So if we can recognize the comparing mind, as soon as it begins to arise, we can often nip the, we can nip it in the bud. We can um, allow ourselves to not go into deeper and deeper darkness. We know that when the comparing mind is there, it's really painful. It's not satisfiable. You know, we compare with one thing, with how it was before, or how we heard somebody else say it should be, and that's the way it's going to be in the future, or how somebody else did it, or how somebody else is sitting more still than we, or that walks more gracefully, 
or that um, whatever. It can go on and on and on. It's not satisfiable because the number of beings that we have to compare ourselves with is endless. (laughs) So (laughs) if we can take that same energy and use it towards the number of beings that we can be happy for, wow, you know, that's just like immediate shift. So there's always someone else to measure up against. It's not satisfiable. It's so painful. It's such a cruelty that we give to ourselves to compare ourselves to others. It pulls us outside of ourselves in a very unhealthy way. There There is a kind of comparing, not really comparing in an unhealthy way, but in a healthy way, which is mudita, which which is sympathetic joy, when we see a quality in another being that's really admirable, that's really, we say, oh, that would be nice to have more of that quality. Like my friend Alexandra, she's um, the 85-year-old. I see that in her so much, and I want to be around her because I don't have it very much. So in that way, I know that I don't have it very much, and she has a lot of it. So I like to be around her to see how she does it. Um, One day, just as a a training to me, just to segue back into that, she called me and said, I want to take you to a symphony up on the other side of the island. And she says, and I want you to dress up in your finest and wear your your." beautiful hat and um, then I'd like us to go and in within that symphony to really appreciate the music and the players that play the music and everyone that uh, is there that is also appreciating the music and how beautifully they're dressed and uh, everything that can be appreciated and so I did that as a training with her and as a further training, she went, we went downtown to downtown being Lahaina, which is this rinky-dink town. Um, and she made us go in all the art galleries and make a compliment, one compliment to anyone in the art gallery. <laughs> and it made me so happy to do that. I was kind of walking on a cloud for a long time. There was so much energy that came from that. So comparing a really cruel thing that we do, if we can nip it in the bud, it really helps a lot to not go into darker spaces. How I find this so painful for myself, to be perfectly honest. So I'm, I'm the, pretty much the new kid on the block as far as you know, <laughs> offering the Dharma here at the three-month course. And I continually compare myself, less and less, to how others do it. You know, that, oh, I can't do it as good. I can't give a Dharma talk like Joseph. I'll never be able to, or be so precise as, as Steve. You know, I don't have that kind of sharp precision, or, you know, the sense of humor that, um, that Carol has, or, you know, the whatever 
um, Sharon has this beautiful metta heart that has such a balance between wisdom and love, you know, and um, and it's true. I never will. But, you know, there are other things that this heart has that they don't have. Uh, <laughs> that I'm beginning to recognize, you know. Well, maybe they do, but I recognize it more in myself. And that I'm recognizing, and that makes me feel so happy, you know. And then to, to just turn it around, I, I don't really look at Joseph and say, oh, that's great, and I'll never have it, and he's bad for having it, and I'm, you know, bad too for not having it. No, I, I do really admire it in, in all of them. But Joseph often reminds us that all of us together complete the Dharma because no one of us can really give it all. That if it, if it weren't for all of us team teaching, then the Dharma wouldn't be able to be presented in its fullness. And there are so many different ways that our hearts are from day to day, moment to moment, lifetime to lifetime, that allow Joseph to come through at one angle and Carol to come through at another and um, me at another and Sharon at another and Steve at another. And, and if it weren't for all those ways, it's almost like Sometimes I shudder to think, oh my God, we're the ones who are going to carry the Dharma when our teachers are gone, and that's not too far from now. They're getting old, you know. So for me to think that I have to carry it alone is really heavy. But to know that, you know, it takes like many of us to carry it because one of our teachers may die pretty soon. That's a wonderful thought. And there's so many ways that we present it that it makes every one of us feel like, you know, when you see a quality in Sharon or Carol, you can say, yeah, she's different or he's different, and so am I. And it's possible to be free, even though I'm different. So comparing can be done in in that in a very wholesome way. But if we can turn the unwholesome qualities of it, just flip the coin over and see. It's easy to see the wholesome way of comparing as easily as it is to see the unwholesome way of comparing. Another impediment to uh, sympathetic joy is demeaning or uh, diminishing. Because sometimes we think that diminishing others in their success or happiness or their fulfillment may um, bring more for us. It's hard to admit that we do this sometimes. And I do it through habit. It's so embarrassing, you know, to do it. But I do it through habit. And um, I want to stop doing it. You know, when, and the way to stop it is to, to know how we, when we do that, so we can stop. So a way to stop is to just recognize when it's being done in any way where, where we may say, yeah, she got that, uh, 
raise, but, you know, she really didn't deserve it. You know how we do that? We're kind of a double-edged sword. Our tongue is double-edged sometimes. So that's one way we do it. Um, Envy is the far enemy of sympathetic joy. It's called the far enemy because it's easy to see. It's so apparent we can see it from afar. It's the inability to endure the success of another in any way, shape, or form. The energy that we have towards that is towards destroying the other person. It's like in the, there's a, the story of Cinderella and the three stepsisters. And you know, the stepsisters, they just wanted to destroy her because she's just basically a good person. Um, and so it's that kind of energy we blindly go forth to destroy another until or unless we finally recognize it and let go. And sometimes the energy can be so strong, it can totally consume and blind us. And not, we don't even know that we're doing it. We don't even know that there's envy or jealousy there. Um, Oh. Avarice is another one. Avarice is where it's kind of this hoarding what we have, an extreme possessiveness, so that no one else can have it. Um, Sharon gives an example in her book, and it's a good one. It's, I couldn't think of any other example to use for myself, too. When we, when we find something that we want to use in a Dharma talk, you know, we don't want to let anybody else know because, <laughs> because they might use it before we do. So <laughs> that's a kind of avarice when we want to hold on. And so the other day something happened. Um, I experienced something which I repeated to Sharon. And right away she said, oh, I'm going to use that in a Dharma talk. Can I use that in a Dharma talk? Will you give me permission to use that in a Dharma talk? And I saw that I was really holding on to that experience because I wanted to use that in a Dharma talk. And it really took the recognition of, you know, that contraction, that holding on. The, it's, it's a yucky feeling. <laughs> it's really yucky. And when I decided... Actually, the words came out of my mouth just as to be gracious, you know, <laughs> but I really didn't mean it. But, <laughs> but actually, the feeling came after the words, um, which is oftentimes a wise thing to do. So when I said, sure, you can use it. And then when I said that, it was like, ah, I felt my heart open. It was like it just, it melted. I felt like I let go of a big burden, you know, big contraction. Yeah, contraction, when you give birth to your goodness. You know, when you open that. So another way that we see avarice when we're a yogi is when um, maybe we're, you know, we go to that place where we love to walk. (laughs) I don't know, maybe somebody else used this as an example already, but um, it's so true. We go to some place where we... 
we love to walk, and then we want to walk there. How could somebody else take our place? You know, we rush there because we think, you know, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it, I'm going to, that's my place. And then we see somebody else walking there. And then there can be that teeny-weeny moment when we say, oh, I'm so happy you can enjoy that place. You know, and sometimes if we let ourselves remain there with that happiness and just see what comes of that. So that's another way. Mudita can really be our ally. It can really help us in just unexpected ways. Um, This is a story about an experience I had where I felt uh, an, an enmity with someone that was formerly very close to me. And um, she was somebody that I was with, that I was on staff with at a, uh, at a retreat. And so she was a cook, and I was helping um, somebody to teach. I was helping Jack Cornfield to teach. And so um, by some misunderstanding and mix-up, there was no food left for me to eat. And there was food in the refrigerator, but somehow I wasn't allowed to get it. And I was so, there's a kind of depletion that happens when you're teaching that's so different from any other depletion that I've felt, you know, a kind of opening. And I was so hungry and I wanted to eat. And there was, I misunderstood, I guess, or something happened, and I couldn't get the food. And through that hunger and, you know, just kind of crankiness, there formed an enmity towards her that lasted a long time that I'm shameful to say about, but it's true. So um, I tried everything. You know, I tried metta for her. I tried metta for me. I tried compassion for her. I tried compassion for me. I tried seeing my goodness, but I couldn't see it because all I felt was enmity for her in this case. You know, I tried everything. I couldn't, just couldn't get through. And then <clears throat> I just felt this barrier between us. And then <clears throat> it went on for a long time, probably a year or more. And um, I know she just had to push me away somehow. You know, I, so anyway. I tried to have compassion for that, couldn't. And then um, somebody told me she was getting married, and I received an invitation from her. And I couldn't even go to her wedding. I felt like such a hypocrite. So I went out and bought the, you know, Hallmark card that says things in it that you don't really mean. And... (laughs) And I bought the present, put it with the card, and I didn't go to the wedding, but had it delivered. And then sometime later, I was going for a walk with a girlfriend, and down the street where my girlfriend said, that's her new house. And so I said, it is. And I, and I looked in, and I saw her kitchen. You know, there were flowers. You could tell it was a kitchen. There were flowers in the hanging in a box, and it was a pretty house. And I felt this moment of happiness for her. And then, you know, inside my heart I said, 
oh, may your happiness continue. And it was a doorway that, you know, made that connection again into her heart, into my appreciation of her. And so sometimes just mudita can be that doorway when nothing else works. It's so strange how that can happen. So it's important to try sometimes. So one of the allies of mudita is taking active delight in another person's happiness, which is that story I just told. Another ally is gratitude, um, counting our blessings. I think we talked about this before, where we count our blessings, not only our happinesses, but another person's happiness, too. And we connect in that way. As we grow older, you know, I've seen how, how older people have a lot of gratitude. Not all, but many of them have a lot more gratitude. Um, someone told me today that he takes that day of Thanksgiving particularly as a practice of gratitude the whole day to count blessings and finds more and more blessings to count. And it's just a wonderful widening of the heart. And I reflected on how, as we get older, how our bodies may, you know, lack the luster and the, the vigor that it had in its youth. And it doesn't shine as much. But the gratitude that we have makes our heart shine. And so the shininess of our heart begins to take over. And we see old people like that, older people. You know, their hearts are really shiny. It's kind of a a way of looking at old age. Compassion is another uh, ally of mudita. And wisdom is another. You know, when we know that the happiness won't last forever, but we can enjoy it as it comes and alights upon our life without holding on. And it's so fleeting. And when we understand the fleeting nature of it, then we can truly be happy for the happiness of another. Because life is basically pretty hard. And when we deeply know that, then it's easy to be happy for someone else's happiness because it doesn't last so long. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.